Welcome back to Game Changers Pharmacotherapy Podcast. I'm Mackenzie Eckern from the CE Impact team. We are so excited to kick off our second season of Game Changers and happy to bring you our dedicated listeners new benefits. We've added CME credit. Our listeners are prescribers and pharmacists who need to stay up to date on the Game Changers Impacting Pharmacotherapy. For more information on how to get pharmacy and medicine CE, just download the Pharmacy Network app and go to the Game Changers Podcast Academy. Listening and claiming credit earns you two hours of CE every month. Second, you can access the show notes and CE credit links right in our app. Just download the Pharmacy Network app and go to the Game Changers Podcast Academy. Listening and claiming credit earns you two hours of CE every month. Each week, Game Changers helps you stay up to date while on the go. Today, Dr. Wald talks about two recent studies that evaluate the role of budesonide in the early treatment of COVID-19. Hello and welcome again to another episode of Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University. Hello, hope you guys are doing well out there. Um, hope things are, are safe and happy in your world. Um, thank you very much for taking the time to listen to us. Thank you. Uh, uh, if you're a regular listener, if you're a new listener, welcome. Uh, hope you'll like what you hear. Hopefully the information you get today will be uh, pertinent. And especially if you're a pharmacist, you can actually uh, head on over to our producer, CE Impact, and take a look at, at uh, uh, getting CE for this. We actually have a, they have a very uh, affordable program for, for getting uh, a CE for just listening to my voice and you know, hear me drone on for a while and then answering a simple question and getting some CE. Real easy to do that. Uh, if you haven't had a chance to, to uh, uh, like us at wherever you get your podcast, subscribe to us, please do so. Uh, the more the merrier and the more we're able to keep the lights on. So we really appreciate you doing that. So so today, uh, as much as we do try to, to, to change things up in the world of COVID, uh, we felt like uh, that uh, today would be a good day to talk about uh, inhaled budesonide in, in COVID. We've had uh, another study come out that, that's looked at, at the, the potential benefit of that. And so I thought it would be a good idea to maybe take a look at the two big studies uh, that have been published um, that have looked at, at uh, inhaled uh, budesonide for COVID. Um, it certainly stands to reason that steroids may have a benefit in, in COVID. I think the $64 question has been, you know, A, you know, would inhaled steroids help? B, uh, you know, how early should we start them? There has been this, this theoretical concern that, you know, in the early, early phases of infection with COVID, you probably would, would not want to use steroids because it might be immunosuppressive and, and may increase the, the, lo- the, the viral load in patients that might, might may lead to worse outcomes. Uh, interestingly, I'm not really sure other than a couple of retrospective studies and, and some stuff from really the really early days of the, of the pandemic that that's really been borne out. And, and you know, cer- certainly currently, uh, based on the recovery study, you know, someone who's admitted to the hospital with, with COVID who requires oxygen, we absolutely put them on dexamethasone. And um, I would say that, that that has been, you know, the absolute lodestar of, of treatment for, for COVID more than, more than almost anything else we do in these patients is I think that's the thing that I've personally seen actually help people. So it stands to reason that, 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 that steroids may help. There have been some animal studies that have suggested that inhaled steroids reduce expression of ACE2 and some of the other receptors.
receptors that that SARS-CoV-2 uses to, to, to get entry into the cell. So if that's the case, that would that would be the biologically plausible reason why inhaled corticosteroids would work. And so you know, and it's I would say it's inexpensive. The pharmacists listening to my voice know that inhaled steroids are certainly not inexpensive, but compared to tens of thousands of dollars of remdesivir or anything else that we're using, it's, it's certainly on the cheaper end of things. So you know, the the two studies that have been looked at, the first study was a much smaller study um, called the Stoic study. Um, it was published, or it was, and, uh, and both these studies were done in the United Kingdom. Uh, this was a randomized open-label parallel group phase two study um, done in a city in the UK. And uh, what they did in the study is they basically took all comers. They took anyone over age 18 with symptoms of COVID who had symptoms within seven days. And that was the big group that eligible for conclusion. So they did not specifically take patients at high risk, patients over age 65 or patients with comorbidities, things like that. They basically took all comers. And, and so a very broad inclusion criteria. Uh, they excluded patients if they had uh, been taking inhaled corticosteroids or systemic glucocorticoids for some other reason, or they had a known allergy, obviously, which not too many people are going to have. Uh, in that group, then, they, they this was a randomized uh, control trial. So they randomized patients to their usual care. And this was usual care based on the, on the National Health Service of the United Kingdom, um, which really doesn't have a lot of stuff other than just basically symptomatic treatment in, in non-hospitalized patients. Uh, they did stratify patients in, in by age. So whether they were under age 40, over age 40, gender, and number of comorbidities, whether they had one or less or two or more. Um, and then in those who met inclusion criteria then were randomly assigned to that usual care or intervention with, with the Pulmacort turbohaler. Um, and they, they blasted these patients. They gave uh, 1,600 micrograms of, of, of uh, budesonide a day, so two puffs twice a day. So pretty much, you know, quite right at the top of the, of the dosing scale, which I guess makes sense. I'm not sure that, that if we're going to use this, we're going to give the maximum dose to help. This study, uh, the primary outcome was defined as, as basically anyone who needed to go see uh, a, a, a healthcare provider urgent for their COVID symptoms. And so that meant anyone who went to the urgent care, anyone who went to the emergency department, or anyone who was hospitalized. And so um, uh, that was the primary outcome. In the UK, There's they actually say, they actually had a kind of a 1-800 number for people to call and, and say, hey, you know, I've got these symptoms, what should I do? Uh, I'm, I'm sure in some states they've had that over, over the last year or so, but, but, you know, that's kind of one of the things they use to help, you know, select out patients. They did use, uh, had some secondary outcomes that include clinical recovery, which is basically just time to report its symptom resolution. And they did use some standardized uh, uh, questionnaires to do that. Um, this uh, was a, a, a a, a, a fairly complex study from a statistical standpoint. They used uh, ANCOVA models, which kind of makes sense because you do want to try to to adjust for com uh, to for confounders, and that would be a way to do that with 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 the with the ANCOVA test. And then they did some other kind of complex testing, but it all kind of made sense when I kind of read through it. Uh, they basically uh, had 167 participants uh, that were recruited from July to December of last year, um, and, and uh, they ended up uh, excluding 21 patients. So in and they had 146 patients randomly assigned, 73 to usual care and 73 to budesonide. This was a fairly healthy group. Um, the mean age was 44, so much, much younger than you'd expect. Uh, I think um, in many other studies, about half were female. Most were Caucasian, as you might imagine, being from the UK. Uh, but uh, only uh, 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 only 4% of patients had diabetes. Uh, less than 10% of patients had hypertension. So again, a fairly healthy population with, uh, with COVID. 
and their duration of symptoms were three days. This was an intention to treat study. And what they found in this study was that that primary outcome, the need to go see you know, emergent care, ED or be hospitalized occurred in 15% uh, percent of patients in the usual care group compared to only 3% of patients in the budesonide group. And that did reach statistical significance. So uh, they also found that self-reported clinical recovery was one day quicker. And, and, and so, you know, on the whole, they found a, found a, a benefit in even this fairly general group in patients who required, you know, a, a higher level of care, if you will, and seemed to recover a little bit quicker. Patients tolerated it uh, very well because, again, it was fairly short, short-term treatment and uh, sore throat was actually the only reported side effect. So, that was kind of the first basic study that was that that was published, and I think when that came out, people were kind of like, "Well, that's interesting," but I mean, you know, I'm not probably going to prescribe $250 worth of of budesonide to everybody who, uh, um, um, you know, has COVID because you know, a that's probably not cost effective. B, I suspect that many insurance companies are not going to pay for that. I mean, because again, it's not a, not an indication uh, for COVID, so I think it'd be difficult to get payers to go for that. So a lot of times, I think patients would have to pay for it out of their own pockets, which is going to make things difficult as well. So that study, I think, was was interesting, but we're kind of going to put that on the wait and see uh, pile. And then the principal study was published. So the principal study was another UK study. Uh, it was a national study, uh, and, and it was part of, of the principal platform, uh, like the recovery platform. This is one of these, these uh, gigantic platform studies that is, that is going on in the UK primarily, where, they're, where they have the design set up where they can look at multiple treatments going on at the same time um, and then drop people out as as, as, as therapies don't seem to benefit or continue in patients who do seem to have a benefit depending on, on, on what the therapy is. Um, this uh, platform between uh, the, the, the two different uh, uh, studies has looked at all sorts of things already, including hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, doxycycline, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, with a lot of that stuff, didn't really find a benefit. Uh, but this piece of, of the principal study uh, 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 was looking at inhaled budesonide. So, and, and this is an interim analysis. This was what this isn't the final uh, um, uh, analysis of it. It is the interim analysis, but they felt like the data was was good enough that it was it was worth at least me, you know getting it out to the to the main medical community. This was a much more self-defined population in the principal study uh, because they wanted to look at high-risk patients. So these are patients who are over age 65, over age 50 with comorbidities, and and again most of the comorbidities you would expect: uh, diabetes, hypertension, obesity, things like that. Uh, they had uh, uh, ongoing symptoms and. And they had either confirmed or suspected COVID-19. Uh, in the UK, it is worth noting that that uh, um, uh, many patients are, not many, but some patients have COVID-19, but never actually get a positive PCR and are still kind of allowed to be in some of these studies. Uh, the the uh, results we'll talk about today were in the absolute COVID-positive-only groups. That's worth noting, I think. Um, um, and basically, you know, again, high-risk patients uh, who had had symptoms within actually the last two weeks, so a, a pretty broad uh, 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 time period as well. They couldn't be in the study, again, if they were on budesonide already or other systemic or inhaled corticosteroids, if they were unable to use the inhaler or if uh, the inhaled budesonide was contraindicated and they didn't really go into detail about what that might be. Same dosing as the as the stoic study where they got 800 twice daily for 14 days or usual care, care alone. Initially, the uh, outcome of the study was going to be proportion requiring hospitalization, which again, in this high-risk group certainly makes sense, but they found found that, that as the study was going on, the number of patients being hospitalized for COVID was dropping, um, probably again, because of, of, of uh, uh, um, implementation of, of things like masking and, and uh, uh, social distancing. Um, and so they felt like uh, they needed to add another uh, uh, out, 
outcome to, to get the power they needed to, to, to show a difference if one existed. And so they added a, a, an outcome of, of um, uh, illness duration. So basically how long they had symptoms. So they had two co-primary endpoints. Well, again, the first being hospitalization. The second was duration of, 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 of symptoms as well. They also uh, did secondary outcomes about, you know, basically some of these scales that, that the Stoic study did is how people were, how well people were feeling you know, and what the recovery was at, at day 28. Um, they, uh, much bigger study, uh, they, they knew they'd need about 800 patients total in the study uh, to show a two-day difference in, in recovery time and, and uh, assuming a 5% hospitalization in the usual care group, uh, they, they would need about 1,500 patients per group. So again, they knew they'd need quite a number of patients. They used the Bayesian logistic regression model for the stats, which is complex, but I think reasonable for, again, this kind of complex adaptive randomized control trial. And again, it's worth noting that this was an interim analysis, not the final analysis, which hasn't been published yet. Uh, as of March 25th of 2021, they had actually enrolled 4,600 patients into the study. A thousand were randomized to, to budesonide in 1943 were, were on usual care alone. And then the rest were in these other groups in this platform study that, that, that we're looking at. Uh, about 80% of patients um, uh, when they did self-reporting were taking budesonide for at least seven days. Looking at the 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 uh, out, uh, the results, about six percent of these patients were over age sixty five. About half were women. Ninety two percent were Caucasian, and the uh, median duration of symptoms was six days before randomization. Um, almost everybody in the study had at least one more comorbidity. The majority had hypertension, and a significant number had diabetes as well. So again, I think a much higher risk population and a population much at higher risk for for, for hospitalization. Uh, when they took a look at uh, uh, the time to first recovery, so the the, the first uh, of the co-primary outcomes, they did find that there was uh, a, a benefit in time to recovery of about three days. So, so um, uh, patients who were getting budesonide recovered about three days quicker than patients who received usual care, and that did reach statistical significance. Um, at that interim in, uh, date, when they looked at the other primary outcome, which was uh, related hospitalizations, uh, it was 8.5% in the budesonide arm versus 10.3% in the usual care arm. That was not enough to reach statistical significance. But again, remembering that this study has not been finished yet, and, and as they continue to add on patients, they may end up with enough power to show a statistically significant difference. Certainly, it was, it was numerically better. It didn't seem to be harmful to patients in that, uh, but but it, it we won't know that until the final analysis of the patient. So they felt that that the, the primary outcome of three days more rapid uh, recovery was enough to, to at least get an interim analysis out there, um, and we'll see what the final analysis of this shows. They did not report um, adverse effects in the study, so that is worth mentioning, but again, seven to 14 days of, of inhaled budesonide, I, I kind of doubt there would be any real serious side effects, again, except perhaps maybe, you know, horse throats or throat maybe a case or two of, of, of thrush if people aren't, aren't uh, you know, rinsing their mouths out after they use the inhaled steroid. So, you know, I, I, you know, without it being stated, you know, we don't know for sure, but, but knowing the medication and its long history of use uh, for, for asthma and COPD, I don't think there'd be any reason why we'd see any really severe side effects. So what do we make of all this? I think, I think we now have a couple of studies that show that uh, budesonide at a minimum, uh, inhaled budesonide seems to have a role in, in, in recovery in patients, especially if they're older. Um, and this was, I think, a pretty decent randomized control trial and, and um, you know, had enough patients in it uh, that, that I 
think I think we can kind of take this information to the bank. So I think I think that 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 the, the clinical aspect is is certainly there, especially in 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 older patients. I think that the the benefit risk ratio, or at least maybe the cost benefit ratio, uh, would 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 say that budesonide is a good thing to do. But I I, sus- I do caution prescribers listening that I think they what they may find much more practicably is that is that um, uh, inhaled uh, uh, tur- tur- turbo the Pomacort turbo inhaler is not inexpensive. Again, most of these inhalers cash prices somewhere between two hundred and four hundred dollars, and I mean there's no way to give you know just two weeks of it. So you're going to have to get the whole inhaler, and uh, it is it is going to be pricey for patients. I am un I am unsure that the average insurance company is going to pay for this because again it's not an FDA approved indication, and um, um, I, I think it may, it may it may be challenging to to, to get to get insurance companies to pay for to pay for it. So I think in the end that's going to be the biggest uh, uh, challenge to to, to implementing uh, this data in, in the United States compared to the UK, of course, where where they they have kind of you know uh, standardized healthcare for everybody. So it'll be interesting to see where we go with that. Um, but I do think that that especially in high risk patients, that um, if 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 we can get the inhaler to them and we can teach them how to use the inhaler appropriately, and as any pharmacist will tell you, that's always a challenge in and of itself. Um, that that this does seem to have have a, a role uh, that has a benefit and the 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 risk and harm seems to be quite small. So budesonide might be added. We'll see what what the National Institutes of Health uh, recommendations for the treatment of COVID say from this data. I suspect they might be waiting for the final analysis of of, uh, the principal study to kind of make their recommendations. But it'll be very interesting to see what what national guidelines say as far as this. But again, some good news that I think that 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 we do have a a, a therapy that seems to have at least a a moderate benefit, especially in early COVID patients, and uh, may actually be protective against them getting very, very sick. So inhaled budesonide um, seems to have a role in, in uh, 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 improvement in recovery. It may have a role as far as patients requiring higher levels of care or even hospitalization. I think that needs to kind of be teased out a little bit more. Um, and, and I think that that for the pharmacists listening, it would not surprise me if you're already seeing an increase in the number of prescriptions of, 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 uh, of Pulmacort inhalers. Um, can you translate this data to other inhalers? Probably, I mean, I mean, there's no particular magic. I don't think to budesonide, um, but I, I suspect that that uh, most prescribers will probably stick with what the study did. Uh, so that that's I think worth noting. Uh, so don't be surprised if you see more of these. Um, I think the question is going to be: Can we get people to, to to use them correctly, and can we more importantly get them into their hands and, and get them paid for? So that's it for this week of uh, Game Changers. Again, thank you very much for listening. Uh, hit that uh, subscribe button. Hit that like button if you haven't done that. We will catch you next week. Hopefully, not talking about COVID um, if, if we can. And remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. We'll see you next week. Thank you for joining Dr. Jeff Wall for this week's episode. If you like it, please share it. Head over to ceimpact.com for more.